Today we're jumping back into our sermon series, The Summer on the Mount, Living Counterculturally. Why, why do we need to talk about living counterculturally? Do we need to go around looking for a fight, disagreeing, and being a counter perspective to every single thought that our culture has? No. We would then be defined by our world, right? You think this, so I'm going to think that. Okay, I, oh, you see it that way, I'm going to see it this way. It's okay to agree with others sometimes, but rather than being defined by our disagreements, we are defined by God's culture. And in that way, God's kingdom and culture and way of life points, uh, and at points will be counter to the culture that we live in. You know that our culture needs help. We know this by our experiences, right? The times that our family or friends or people in general making promises they don't follow through on, backstabbing that takes place in the workplace or any place to make it, to make it up some type of ladder, cheating to be sure to put ourselves in front of somebody else, or maybe just in a little bit more of a position that our, that our culture values. The lack of patience. We want things now, we'll do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter that you have a sermon today and that you forgot your shoes at home and you have to drive back home and you get into the work and the printer's not working, right? Real life, that's today for me. Had to find other options. But people become objects, a means to an end. I want this, so I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get there. Expectations from our culture tend to blur the line of what's right so that we can make it in the world. We all have hurt and imperfection around us and we all, if we take an honest look, it's also in here. Nobody's perfect. We're not, I'm not perfect. So many times in this culture we desire something more, something better. And that's why Jesus came, right? He came into this world to share the good news. And from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focuses his thoughts and teaching on God in heaven and his kingdom. He brings the focus to above. Jesus lays out the qualities that represent a godly, heavenly kingdom perspective. And he addresses his audience as a salt of the world, as a light to the world. Minor, little objects that can have a huge impact in their environment and surroundings. And then Jesus lays out his intent, which Joel got, uh, talked about last week, that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And those who do will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something that Joel got to talk about. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate that. Sometimes I, I like other people getting the hard ones. Is that you have to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to be able to make it in the kingdom of heaven. The religious leaders of their day, they have to be more righteous, they have to be holier than them. Math, uh, I'll just read it for you. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this gives us the context for what Joel got to introduce and then also what I get to pick up. Is that we had three, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now what in the world does that mean? Right? Because he's talking about scripture or scriptural concepts. And this is where 
If he was talking just specifically about Scripture, he would have said, it was written. But what does he say? He says, you have heard it said. So when he says this, he's actually criticizing the hearts and addressing the hearts of the Pharisees and their teachings. He came to fulfill Scripture, not to abolish it. And this is what, where I, I'm landing today is ultimately what Jesus was getting at and is going towards is that the kingdom of God comes when we imitate God. And what a beautiful day that to, for that to, to land is on Father's Day. For us to imitate our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 48 says, and this is where we're going to be ending, so it's just kind of like a spoiler sermon. You, you already get to know what the ending is. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Be perfect. It's not a big, it's not a big, you know, lofty goal, is it? Sometimes, how do we even, how do we even look at that and say we can do that? And this is where, through Jesus, all things are possible. Without him, you're up the creek without a paddle. Your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees and the teachers. You must be perfect as God is perfect. And this teaching echoes the prayer that he's about to have in chapter 6. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Imitating God fulfills the Old Testament and brings about God's kingdom. And through Jesus, that's possible. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to keep going. God, we ask for your wisdom and discernment as we look at your word, as we look at Jesus. Help us see ourselves and see how this scripture overlaps with our life. Help us see where you might be calling us to be transformed or take one more step. We ask that you give us that so that we may honor you and bring about your kingdom. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So let's read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord, uh, to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Some translations say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When Jesus is, is, is not actually quoting the law here, he is just referencing it, plus it seems like the teaching, right? We've already addressed that. Read what it says in Leviticus 19.12. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't swear. And we're not talking about cursing, right? We're not talking about using words when you stub your toe. Rather, we're talking about swearing as being utilized to testify that your word or words are true. What I tell you is true, and I'm going to say that on this object, that is true. We know this from our experience, right? The kinds of conversations really don't really breed trust and give us confidence when others start swearing by objects, right? Rather, we develop a mistrust or a skepticism when we start doing this on whether they'll come through with what they say and are promising. You know, when somebody says, I swear on the hair on my, on my dad's he head, 
and then you find out later that he's bald. Like, it doesn't go very far, right? For some reason, when you, in our culture, when you swear, maybe on your parents' grave, that for some reason has more value than if I swore on something else, on this podium. For whatever reason, our culture has set up a hierarchy of values on what we can and can't swear on, and a lot of people avoid it. In the ancient Jewish community, over time, they developed a hierarchy too. They developed one so much so that they actually ha rabbis had to be the judge on which ones were lesser and which ones were binding. Because, and the thought was, is that, well, if I swear on these lesser objects that aren't associated with God, I'm actually not defaming his name, I'm actually, it's, I'm kind of like, hey, I got the pass on that one. And so when Jesus then goes into talking about, don't swear by the heavens, don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't swear by anything on this earth. Even your own head, it's black or white, that comes with age. Like, you can't control that. God made you. Don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we bring about the kingdom of God by doing this, having integrity. Letting our yes be yes and our no be no helps bring about the kingdom of God, because we imitate God by having integrity, and that means being known for keeping our word, for doing what's right, in front of others, and also by ourselves. They don't have to question on whether or not I say I'm going to do something in front of you, but then I go off and don't do it behind your back. But they know when we have integrity that we're going to do it no matter where we are, no matter who sees it, no matter when. A person of integrity chooses to do what's right despite the repercussions doesn't matter what comes about or what, what threats are going to come with it. It doesn't matter whether telling you the truth gets you in trouble or the mistakes that you've made and what pe how people see. A dad tells of his interaction with his ch child one day, or children one day. It was late, and my sons, Peter and Paul, and this is not the Bible story. It was, a, it was probably a Christian. Um, the name is sons after them. They had been in bed for at least an hour. My wife and I had just returned from our Bible study group and I snuck into the boys' room to say goodnight. Dad, can I have some ice cream? No, Peter, it's late, way past bedtime. But Dad, you promised. He was right. Peter had asked for ice cream earlier in the day, but we didn't have any. And I said, I'll get some for you later, I promise. Dinner came and went, we cleaned up the kitchen, boys picked up their toys, and the sitter arrived, and my wife and I left for the Bible study. I'd forgotten all about the ice cream, but Peter hadn't. So even though it was after 10 o'clock, I hopped in the car, drove to the convenience store, I got a half gallon, and hurried home. Peter and I enjoyed chocolate vanilla swirl together. After all, I had a promise to keep. Our family, our friends, our coworkers, our, our par business partners, our customers, our acquaintances, anybody who knows us knows who we are by how we follow through on our word. Our culture often tells us it's okay to tell a little, little white lie or bend the truth if it doesn't matter, right? It, what's it going to matter if it doesn't hurt anybody? Jesus says something that is countercultural to this. Your word and integrity do matter. And I won't say that if you find yourself in a position at 10 o'clock at night and your kid asks for ice cream that you promised that you would lack integrity by not giving them ice cream. Children also know, need to learn what mistakes are and, and how to work through that, right? But as a Christ follower, we are God's ambassadors in this world and we represent him and his kingdom. 
and we bring about the kingdom of God here and now by having integrity. Let's keep reading in, in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand, o- hand over your coat as well. And if everyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It's been suggested by some scholars that eye for eye and tooth for tooth could be translated eye in retaliation for eye and tooth in retaliation for tooth. Scholars believe that the law was not about giving others a vengeful out or a vengeful way, but rather the law was more interested in limiting vengeance or retaliation. Because we all know the downward spiral of payback, right? One small thing, one comment, one practical joke, one mistake, and over time things escalate to the point when conflict turns into family spouts that last for years, or friendships that have an abrupt end, or even physical violence. But what does Jesus say? He says, do not resist an evil person. This could, another way of translating it would be, do not set yourself against, or do not oppose. Rather than setting ourselves against someone personally, Jesus calls us to suffer and try to change the story. Jesus speaks of the evil that can be done against his audience. Striking the right cheek, probably one of the biggest insults that you can do, and so much of an insult in that culture that they, you could actually persecute it by law, and that was Roman law and Jewish law. Hitting a man's right cheek was, uh, was a huge offense. Second, Jesus talks about extreme example being sued for your coat or your clothes or your tunic. The poorest people in the first century only had an inner and an outer garment. And the outer garment would serve as their jacket as well as their blanket at night. So when you're suing over the inner garment and then Jesus says, oh, hey, by the way, give them your outer garment as well, what that would mean is leaving somebody possessionless and naked. Roman soldiers had the legal right to demand labor of a person and an animal up to a certain point. And from the text, we could probably guess that would be a mile. And this makes us think of the, when Jesus was carrying the cross on, and then the Roman soldiers looked at Simon of Cyrene and said, hey, get in there and help. Simon, ha- like, by law, had to help at that point. Jesus is not only calling us not to oppose others for doing wrong, more, but more so, he asks us to position ourselves to change the story and change the tone of the interaction to make it, and here's the key, a positive, or p- possible positive interaction. Because what's a Roman soldier going to do when he says, hey, let's walk one mile. Come on, pick this up. I don't want to work hard. And you're like, okay, here, let me walk a little bit further with you. It goes from a, I'm going to empower over you and t- bossing you around to, why are you doing that? What's, what's wrong with you? Right? Sometimes that's the, way, that's the responses that we get. When you do something Christ-like, some people are like, give you that look, and they're like, something's up with you. You're a little off. What's wrong? We bring about the kingdom of God by humbling ourselves. The Jackie Robinson story is a 1950 movie starring Jackie Robinson himself. 
Jackie Robinson, uh, in this movie, it, it depicts the prejudice and hatred Robinson had to endure and the depth of patience, courage, and self-control he displayed in the face of relentless adversity. In one scene in the movie, Jackie is talking with Brooklyn Dodgers general manager um, Branch Rickey about becoming the first African-American baseball player in the major leagues. Mr. Rickey makes up a scenario in which a player insults Robinson on the field and asks Robinson, what do you do? Mr. Ricky, do you want a ball player who's afraid to fight back? Robinson asks. Ricky asks, answers emphatically, I want a ball player with the guts not to fight back. You've got to do the job with base hits, stolen bases, and fielding ground balls, Jackie, nothing else. Now I'm playing you in the World Series and I'm a hot-headed player. I want to win the game, so I slide into, into you spikes first. You jab the ball into my ribs and the umpire calls out. So I haul off and punch you in the right cheek. What do you do? And Jackie looks pauses, looks at him, and says, Mr. Ricky, I've got two cheeks. Jackie Robinson illustrates the power and impact one person can have through Christ-like humility in the face of prejudice, adversity, and hostility. He did, not, he did become the first African-American to play in the major leagues, and he changed the game of baseball in America. Humility is not powerless passivity does not mean that you don't have power. Rather, humility is being powerful and strong enough not to retaliate when you can. Jesus calls us to suffer and respond counter to our, what our culture thinks we should respond. It reminds me of the beatitude in Matthew uh, 5, 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We bring about the kingdom of heaven by humbling ourselves. If we go, keep going further in verses 33 and, and after. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that therefore statement is giving the conclusion of what he had just been teaching. Because then in chapter 6, he transitions into, into addressing something different. But Look, let's look at the reference, Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Sounds familiar. Something that maybe Jesus had just talked about. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There are some Jewish groups like the Essenes that, that thought loving your neighbor only applied to those who were under God's covenant. And they even went so far as to teach to hate your enemies hate those who are not under the Old Testament law. Yet the Old Testament law does not teach hate for one's enemies. At points, it directs to the opposite. In Proverbs 25, um, in verses 21 and 22, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Jesus challenges those who taught to hate your enemy and says the opposite. Love them. Pray for them. 
but who exactly is your enemy? Who's my enemy? I mean, I don't think there's anybody in this room that would be like, oh yeah, my enemy is this person or this group, right? Sometimes it's hard when you're like, okay, what is, I don't, I don't got any enemies. How, how do I apply this? And something that probably seems a little bit more likely of what Jesus meant uh, is helped by asking this question um, of who, who might be identified as our enemy. Who is someone that is hostile towards you? Who is someone that is hostile towards you? Most of us have experienced hostility from others, right? Whether it's those who are close to us, maybe just friends, or maybe the person driving by us waving their fists as, you know, on the road. We've all had those interactions of some, sometimes some, some point of hostility. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is uh, another point in verse 44. It says, some, some of you might translate that you may be like, your, uh, may be sons of your father in heaven. But there also is like a so that, for the purpose of. Do this so that you will be like your father in heaven. Like father, like son. A chip off the old block. The apple doesn't far, uh, fall far from the tree. All things that we learn, you know, about that we inherit, uh, inherit some of the characteristics and qualities and maybe even sayings that um, our parents give. They used to say a, a phrase occasionally from the Sandlot. You ever seen that movie? Such, it's such a, a funny movie and a, and, and a good movie. And I would say, you're killing me, Smalls. You have something, somebody does something that's silly or funny, and you're like, you're killing me, Smalls. Well, I would do this occasionally. I have a daughter who hears this. And why did I stop? Because one day, my toddler, Eliana, did something silly. I gave her that look. I was like, you're killing me, Smalls. I didn't say it out loud. And then she looks at me and says, I kill you. And I was like, that was an end that I did not anticipate. It took a direction that I, I did not foresee. It's something that when we look to our parents, some things we take the looks on, right? And you're like, oh, you're a spitting image. And then there's other things that might be nurtured or other things that we might learn from them as we watch them. And that's what we see here, is that Jesus is saying, hey, be like your Father in heaven, and look, look at the patience and kindness he sends through his created order, putting the bright, warming sun and refreshing, life-giving rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And that's from Psalm 145.9. Jesus challenges us to do the same. We should be like our Father in this way, to love and be kind to others, no matter what our similarities or differences. We bring about the kingdom by being peacemakers. Going past trying not just to resist or oppose somebody, but going further and saying, I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you. Who is hostile towards you and how can you run, uh, love them? This runs so counter to our culture. It, it's so easy to love those who love you. It's so easy to be kind to those who are kind to you. It is hard to be kind and give good words and, and patient words to people who are hostile. Yet, that's what we experience in life. 
A man named Peter Miller, a pastor during the American Revolution, Miller lived in, I'm going to probably say this wrong, Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And one of his dearest friends was none other than General George Washington. And George Washington and he were good enough uh, acquaintances and friends for something significant to take place in a conversation. See, Peter Miller had a spiteful troublemaker in his town by the name of uh, Michael Whitman, Widman. He would oppose him, try to humiliate him, and even on one occasion, he went so far as to spit in his face. One day, Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to death. And when Miller heard the news, he set out to Pen uh, Philadelphia to plead for the life of his enemy. After walking 70 miles on foot, Peter petitioned his friend, General Washington, for Whitman's life. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. Friend? Who said anything about a friend? He's one of the biggest enemies that I have. He's mean to me, humiliates me. And then George says, what? What are you saying? You're, he's not even your friend. You walk 70 miles? And there's even some tearful components because Miller didn't do this because he was a, for a friend. He did this because Jesus said to pray for your enemies and love them. And tearfully, Washington said, you've walked 70 miles to save a life of an enemy. That puts matters in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. And he did. That wasn't the end of it. Miller still had to walk another 20 miles overnight to reach Widman's execution before it happened. Miller and Widman went back to Ephrata, no longer enemies. They were friends. God's kingdom comes when peacemakers love and pray for those who are hostile to them. Matthew 5, 9 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus invited and challenged us to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And this word perfect may not just mean like perfection, but wholeness, completeness. And it fits in with what Jesus is saying. I did not come to the abolish the law, I came to the fulfill it. And by imitating God, our Father in heaven, we can help bring about that completeness, that wholeness, that perfection. The reality is, is that Jesus' words 2,000 years ago in the first century are just as applicable to today's brokenness. Jesus calls us to be transformed and to bring about his kingdom by being like our Father. And that means we bring about the kingdom by having integrity, by humbling ourselves, and by being peacemakers. We bring about God's kingdom when we imitate God. And if we take an honest look at ourselves as individuals and as a community, we always have room to grow. We always have a next step that we can take. So where does God need to transform you? Where does he need to transform us? As a church? As Bristol? Imagine a community of walking in the character and love of God, going about each day in our relationships at home, school, work, or anywhere between with integrity where people learn that what we say, we will do. When they need somebody to rely on and give an honest opinion, they know who to call. And they can rely on us because if we say we're gonna do it, we will. Imagine that we are not quick-tempered, but that we respond with, uh, humbly to difficult and hurtful situations with patience and gentle words. 
We take a lose-lose situation and, and make it a lose and possibly win situation. There's no promises that it will make it better, but it might. To give a positive interaction the same way in the name of Jesus, imagine what kind of confidence and love that other people will see and that they might want to experience from your response. Imagine if each one of us were peacemakers, that we looked at the hostile, hostile people that are directing some maybe difficult situations our way in the same way that God does to everybody he created, he loves them. And if we love them and choose to be kind and bless those who are unkind to us, how surprised would they be to receive a polite word? Imagine if we prayed for them. How many more people would join God's family? We are God's sons and daughters, and you and I have the opportunity to make a difference by what we do, by what we say, to fulfill God's desire in this world as we welcome the kingdom of heaven. Imagine if we chose to be like our Heavenly Father each day. What would happen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for sending your Son to bring about a message of hope, a message of love, of humility, of truth, and of peace. And we ask, God, that you move in us, that you move in us as your people, as your children, to help us be more like you so that we may help bring about your kingdom and your will. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.